What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. We just finished looking at the Ten Commandments, looking at the response that the nation of Israel had to receiving that. And, you know, we're all aware, if you've been reading your Bibles in the Old Testament, and if we look at our own lives, that the nation of Israel is not successful in keeping these Ten Commandments. They break all of them. And so that leads to the question, well, what happens when that takes place? What happens when someone breaks one of these commandments that God gives? You know, what happens when someone murders? What happens when someone steals? What happens when someone worships a false god, you know, how are the judges of Israel supposed to justly deal with those who break the commandments of God? Well, at the end of chapter 20 and all of chapter 21, 22, and 23, we have laws that God gives ultimately to the judges of Israel to know how to specifically deal with in a just way the breaking of particular laws. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at these things, looking at specific laws that God gives for those who break them. Uh, and this is very important because we see these specific detailed things because the Ten Commandments are very general. You know, you have like a, a law like don't murder, but there's so many things that come into play with that. Uh, and so we have to have some specifics about different cir- circumstances and situations and how someone should be justly punished for stealing, for murdering, for, you know, all sorts of different things. And, you know, I'm sure many of you have, you know, watched TV shows or movies that deal with the legal system and deal with crime and different things. I personally enjoy watching Law and Order. And one of the reasons I like that show is because it, it kind of shows the complexity of the legal process because, you know, someone can be arrested for murder, but the judge has a lot of things to consider before, you know, he can pass a just judgment. Like, was it premeditated? You know, did they plan this in advance and go out and do this? Or maybe they planned it and had someone else execute the murder. Or maybe it wasn't murder at all. Maybe it was just self-defense. And so all these things kind of play into the punishment that the individual will receive for the crime, and that information is going to be very important, you know, if the judge is going to be able to give that just punishment. And that's what we ultimately have in these next three chapters. We have these specific laws that are going to direct the judges of Israel, and a lot of them are just going to be like, you know, precedenting uh, laws that are, okay, well, we see what God establishes here, so anything similar to that, we can know how to act and how to, you know, deal with these things. And so God's really going to be showing us his legal system, the way in which he believes just penalties should be distributed. And, you know, there's a lot of different legal systems today. We have our own in our country. If you travel to different countries, you'll find that there are different legal systems, different, you know, ideas as to what just crime or penalties should be for crimes. Uh, But, you know, if you look at all of them, you're going to see they're all flawed. You know, none of them are perfect. None of them, you know, justly punish each crime the way that it should. Why? Because they're all ultimately established by men who are flawed, who are sinful. And because of that, you know, what they ultimately produce in a legal system is also flawed, also doesn't really ultimately bring justice. But the thing that I want you to note here as we come to what we see in these next few chapters is it's not Moses, it's not some man or woman in the nation of Israel who is establishing a legal system. It is God himself who is saying this is what is just, the just punishment for crimes committed against what I determine as right and wrong. And since it's established by God, guess what? It doesn't have the sinful limitations of man. So it is a perfect justice system. It might not always be applied perfectly, but the way in which God has established it is perfect and completely just because that's who he is. 
Psalm uh, 19, 7 said, the law of the Lord is perfect. And this is something that we ultimately sometimes misunderstand when we come to the law, that there's nothing wrong with it. You know, the law of God is perfect. It's just his perfect standard. You look at it and there it is, perfection. The problem of the law is just that we can't keep it. You know, that's the issue with the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is within you and I. We're the sinners who break it. It's just a standard of perfection that God says, here is my standard and now I want you to keep it and none of us can keep it and that's the problem that we have and this is kind of at the core of the gospel. You know, since we cannot meet the standard of God's perfection, we are all guilty sinners. We all have a problem that we cannot be right before God by trying to keep the law. Romans chapter 3 deals with this in verses 21 and 22. It says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus to all and on all who believe. So what Romans 3 is telling us is, hey, God has made a way to be righteous apart from keeping the law. Since none of us can keep it, the perfect standard, if you could keep, you could be righteous, but you can't keep it, so now you're not. Well, then how do we become righteous? Through faith in the one who actually did keep the law perfectly, through faith in Jesus Christ. That fact is just a core of the gospel, but also another thing is the fact that there is a need for justice. God is completely just. And that's another fact that's at the core of the gospel. Since he is just, he has to punish sin. And this is something that many people don't like, many people don't want to think of. You know, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to stand before God. My good's going to outweigh my bad. He's just going to let me in. He's not going to punish my sin. Because they just want to look at the love of God, but not the justice of God. But you know what? For God to be just, he must punish sin. Or it goes against his justice. So the perfect law of God and the perfect justice of God, they're both at the heart of the gospel. And I want to clarify that because sometimes when we look at this legal system, and more importantly, the consequences that God establishes in this legal system, some people look at that and say, that's not just. Or that's too harsh. Or that's not fair. And because of our own, you know, desires and our own thoughts, we, we look at God's standard as like, oh, I don't think that's right. And we gotta make sure that we don't do that because this is God who's establishing it. So it's His standard, which is perfect. Just like today, a lot of people say, I don't like the fact that if I'm a sinner and don't put my trust in Jesus, I go to hell. Well, well, that's not fair. You know, that's too harsh. You know, I don't like that. Well, yeah, you might not like that, but it doesn't change the fact that that is what is true. That is what God has established. And so, too, as we look at some of these things that today in our legal system, maybe we don't have the same kind of uh, dealing with people who do these crimes as God says that we should, but we need to recognize we in our justice system are the one that is flawed and not perfect. God is the one who has established the right type of justice according to the one who actually has established right and wrong. So as we start looking at the laws and the justice system that, that God gives us, I want us to recognize it is a perfect justice system, and that is what it is. So the first law that God's going to give here is at the end of Exodus chapter 20. So we're going to read that and look at this first law that God establishes. Exodus 20 verses 22 through 26 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. 
So this first law that God connects here with, uh, or that God shares is connected with ultimately the, the first two commandments. The first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not worship a carved image, something that you have created. And notice once again, God clarifies, he wants to make real clear to the nation of Israel as he establishes this. He says, you shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. So in your worship to me, these are laws kind of surrounding worship of God. I do not want you to be establishing any type of image that is connected with worship to me. I don't want you worshiping other gods. I don't want you to create anything that you think is going to enhance your worship. We looked at this in the first two commandments, and he wants to say, hey, hey, that's not something I want you to make, but there is something I do want you to make. I don't want any gods. I don't want any carved images. I don't want anything at that in my worship But I do want something that you need to make in your worship of me. And notice what he says that is, an altar of earth you shall make for me. This is important. As God expounds upon this section of law, he gave the Ten Commandments, the the general things, and now he's going to give specific details about those who, who break those laws and give some more details about other laws. Notice the first thing that God mentions has to do with sacrifice and has to do with atonement. And I think this is interesting because I think it establishes the reality for the nation of Israel. As they hear these Ten Commandments, right away God is showing them, you guys are going to break them. I've given this to you, but be clear, you aren't going to keep them. And so the first thing that I want you to understand that you need to do is you need to make an altar. This altar is going to be for the purpose of atoning for every time that you break the commandments that I have just given you. And so they need to establish and build this altar. Now, the Hebrew word that is translated altar means a place of sacrifice or killing. It comes from the root word to kill in the Hebrew language. And so, you know, when we think of altar, that's ultimately, it's a place of sacrifice, of death, where something has to be killed. And that's exactly what God wants this altar to be used for. He says, you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. Now, Later on in Exodus, God's going to go into a lot of detail about burnt offerings and, and peace offerings. So we'll wait to then to kind of look at those in detail. But ultimately, the mention here at the outset is helping them see, you know what? You're going to need these different offerings because of the fact that you are going to break different laws and I'm going to require different sacrifices in order to atone for the fact that you have broken those different laws. And notice the kind of altar that God tells them to build. He says, I want an altar of earth. God does not want some ornate or elaborate altar. He doesn't want some, you know, beautiful looking thing with all these carvings and stuff. No, I just want an altar of earth. That will be sufficient for me. And I find it interesting because the ultimate altar, the ultimate place of sacrifice is just two pieces of wood together across And that was sufficient for God. And God says, you know what? If you do make this altar of stone, I don't want anything carved into it. Just like he went back to, I don't want carved images. I don't want anything connected with my worship. And that's including the altar itself. So if it's a piece of stone, then keep it a piece of stone. I don't want all these little carved things within it. I just want it simple. I don't want anything to be distracting from me. I don't want the attention to be drawn to the images or the person who carved the images. I want it all to be towards me. David Guzik wrote this. God at his altar wanted to share glory with no man. The beauty and attractiveness would be found only in the provision of God, not in any fleshly display. And this is something that we're going to see throughout the book of Exodus. And ultimately, God wants the focus to be on the sacrifice, not on this ornate altar. He wants it to be on the atonement, because ultimately, it's pointing to the true ultimate sacrifice, where the focus should be ultimately on Jesus himself. Notice that God also says, Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Now, this is an interesting statement that God is making here. And what he's ultimately saying is, I don't want any display of human flesh 
that is connected with this covering sacrifice of atonement that's going to be here on the altar. And what he's speaking of is if you go up steps and the priests, they have robes, you take a step, the robe comes up, and what's going to be seen? Your flesh, your legs. And so he says, I don't want any flesh to be seen during you know this time of uh, coming before me in worship. And so I don't want any worship that's connected with anything of the flesh. Nothing of the flesh shall be seen during this. Uh, it's interesting, later on, God's going to allow steps to come up to his altar. But guess what? He's also going to establish a new thing that the priests have to wear these undergarment linens that will ultimately cover their legs. So as they do walk up these steps, still their flesh will not be seen because God doesn't want to see flesh in worship. Well, what does he want in worship? Well, it's actually something that we're going to see uh, on Sunday, but I'll give you a little preview. John chapter 4 verse 24 says this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God doesn't want worship to be connected with the flesh. He wants us to worship in spirit. And so this is why he even reveals, hey, I don't want anything of the flesh, anything to be seen at this altar, because my worship needs to be spirit and truth, not flesh and other junk that we like to try to throw in there. But notice that God, as he speaks of this wonderful new law connected with the altar and the sacrifice and atonement, he gives a great promise. He says, in every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I'll bless you. And I think this is really interesting that, that, that this promise of blessing to the nation of Israel is connected with this law of sacrifice and atonement. That in the sacrifice and the atonement of sin, there is the blessing. And this is something that we see throughout the Old Testament law that we need to be aware of because sometimes we kind of just look at it like, well, the only way to receive blessing under the Old Testament law is to obey it. And there is clearly things in the Old Testament law where God says, you obey, you'll be blessed. You disobey, you won't be. But the ultimate blessing that comes through the law is something that we can't do. And that is to completely keep it, to keep it all. And none of us are successful in that. Okay, well then what do we do when we're lawbreakers, which each one of us are? Well, we need the sacrifice. We need the atoning work in order to cover and deal with the fact that we have broken the law. And the wonderful thing about the new covenant and even here in the old covenant is the pointing to the blessing that comes not by keeping the law, but by the sacrifice and the atonement of something else. The death of something else that in the Old Testament covered those sins and in the New Testament, Jesus ultimately living the perfect life, completing the standard that we couldn't and ultimately dealing with our sin. But the blessing ultimately comes not by trying to keep the law, but by looking to the one who kept it on our behalf. Well, now, before we get into the details of this next law that. God is going to give here to the nation of Israel and the specifics of how judges should ultimately punish and deal with people who break it. He says something very important in chapter 21, verse 1. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. The judgments here are the ones that God is establishing for the judges of the nation of Israel. As I started mentioning at the beginning, hey, there's 10 commandments. What do you do when people break them? All right, how are the judges going to justly deal with those who break God's commandments? Well, these three chapters are all about how specifically judges in Israel should punish the crime of those who break the commandments of God to do it in a just way, the way that God says is right. Adam Clark wrote this. These different regulations as are as remarkable for their justice and prudence as for their humanity. Their great tendency is to show the valuableness of human life and the necessity of having peace and good understanding in every neighborhood. And they possess that quality which should be the object of all good and wholesome laws, the prevention of crimes. Well, now we come to this next law. And with it, God shares many different things ultimately to protect really the most vulnerable in that society, and it's a law dealing with servants or slaves. 
Now, before we get into the details of this law, I think we need to understand a few important things about slavery in Israel at this time. Because when we hear that term slavery, there's so many things that are very negative that come into our mind. There are things that we associate with that that really aren't accurate to the way in which things were uh, in Israel at that time. We typically think of someone who is forced into slavery and kept in that state for the rest of their lives. You know, that's typically kind of the concept that we have. You know, they were taken from their homeland. They were placed in slavery against their will, and they're never allowed to get out. Uh, but that is not the case. That is not the situation. That is not what's going on with slavery in, e- in Israel at this time. There, there's basically four different ways that an Israelite could be enslaved to another Israelite. And this is under God's system of justice, how the Israelites should treat one another. Understand that the Israelites do get enslaved by other nations who don't follow God's laws. And so we're not looking at what happens in that. When God's established system, if an Israelite has another person who is a slave to them, this is what we're going to be focused on. And there's only four real ways that that would transpire. The first way is in extreme poverty, an Israelite might sell themselves as a slave. Leviticus 25.39 says this, And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. Now here's something that was just a practical reality in that culture in that time. Someone is extremely poor, they're dying, they have no capacity to earn. The only thing of value that they have is their own life. And so they say, you know what, I will put myself in slavery towards you so that you'll give me a home, you'll give me food, and I'm going to give you my service so that I don't die. And so people were in that situation, and so they willingly sold themselves into slavery because they were destitute, and that was the only thing that they could do in order to survive. But notice that God protects these people who are in this situation by saying, you know what, if someone does that, you have to hire them as a servant. You cannot compel them to be your slave. If they're in that situation, they can serve you. Because you are going to provide for them a home, you are going to provide them food, you are going to help them survive, but you cannot actually make them into a slave. And you know what? you got to give them back their freedom in the year of Jubilee. So it's not like they had to serve you for life. At the year of Jubilee, they have to be set free. So that was one way a willing choice of someone who is destitute could sell themselves into slavery. A second way an Israelite might become a slave to another is that a father might sell his daughter into servitude. Now, I know that sounds horrible, but we're going to look at the details surrounding that in just a minute. That's going to be focused on in the text that we have. And so we'll see how that actually is for the daughter's benefit. uh, And we'll look at the details of that. A third way an Israelite might become a slave to another Israelite is in the case of bankruptcy. A person might become a servant to his creditors in order to pay off their debts. All right, well, you know what? I borrowed a bunch of money. I lost my job. I have no capacity to pay back that money. And you know what? In that culture, I couldn't just say, well, I'm just going to file for bankruptcy and I'll never have to pay it back. No, you still have to pay it back. Well, what do I have to offer? Your service. You're going to be a servant to them until you pay that back. Uh, and so within that culture, that was what was required. And so that they had to give themselves as a servant to the people that they owed money to and they would serve that time and pay that debt back. We're also going to look at the guidelines for that because and someone's in that situation, they could be taken advantage of, but God's going to give specific guidelines in the text we're going to look at tonight to protect those people in that vulnerable situation. And a fourth way that an Israelite might become a slave to another Israelite is if a thief had nothing with which to pay proper restitution to the person he stole from, and so now he was made a slave. Exodus 22.3 If a thief steals from you, he should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Now we're going to look at details as we get to Exodus 22 about, you know, how God deals with those who steal. I think it's so much more efficient and beneficial than our system today. But there's a consequence. All right, you've stolen. And the bare minimum of a thief, they had to give at least double back. It was usually actually four times what they stole to the person that they stole from. In our culture, we just put them in jail. 
well, that doesn't do anything for the person who got all their stuff taken from them. You know, so the, the thief was now saying, hey, you, you got to give back to the person that you took from. Well, I can't. I stole all the money and I spent it all on drugs and alcohol. Well, guess what? You still have something of value, your own life, and you're going to be put into slavery. And this is the only situation where there's force slavery. We will force you into slavery until you pay off that debt. Oh, that's so harsh. Well, we force people into jail. I mean, uh, we do the same thing. It's a consequence for breaking the law. But theirs was, you're going to actually pay back that person that you took from, where we just put people in prison and the person who got stolen from, they get nothing. Uh, and so it's actually a better system. But notice with the first three, it's a voluntary thing based on, you know, unfortunate situations, unfortunate circumstances where they're down and out, but they choose to go into this for a benefit of housing and food and being able to repay things and survive. The only one that's forced is this one where someone has stolen and they are now forced to be in slavery to pay those things back. But with none of them, there's not a lifelong thing. Actually, we're going to see that there's a specific time limit that God's law establishes that no one can go beyond that, no matter what. They have to be released and freed. Uh, and so in our vocabulary today, we probably describe this more as indentured servitude than slavery, because we think of slavery in a very different way. You're forced into it. You're in it for life. And unfortunately, we had slavery in our culture. You know, we have sex slaves. We have all sorts of slavery that's actually growing. And people are not asking to be in that. They're forced into that. And they're not released from that unless they're rescued. And so we do have slavery in the thing, way that we think of it. But here it's more of an indentured servant of I chose to do this. And I only have a certain time frame in which I'm required to continue in this. It is not something that is lifelong. So three things to understand about slavery in Israel Chosen or mutually agreed upon, limited duration, and God has a it highly regulated. So it doesn't abuse those who are in this vulnerable place. The other important thing we need to understand before we get into these laws concerning slavery is that God doesn't approve of it. God does not approve of being forced into slavery, especially for a lifetime. As we see, the only approval that God gives for forced slavery is a consequence and punishment for a thief to have to go and pay restitution if he cannot do that. Now, if the thief has plenty of money, then God doesn't put him into this. If he can pay back what is due, then his debt is done and it moves on. It's only if he can't, then God allows for that to happen. But it is not for life. There is a limit to it. Uh, and I think this is so important to bring up because there are many people who feel like, well, the Bible is responsible for slavery. Like slavery didn't start until Moses wrote it here in Exodus, which is like the most foolish thing ever. You know, slavery was going far before this ever transpired. And as we're going to look at this, God's actually protecting people in this very vulnerable place. He's not approving uh, of the way in which slavery was run at that time. And so it's really not responsible for for slavery. It's actually responsible for the elimination, not the establishment of slavery. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, a careful consideration of God's law for slavery will show that they abolished slavery and substituted it for convented labor. So let's look at the law that God gives for Hebrew slaves, uh, and we'll see kind of his heart for protecting people. Verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant... He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. So God starts off by sharing something very important. If you have a Hebrew slave, you buy a servant, he shall serve for a limited time, six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. So no matter what the circumstances of, of coming into this situation and, and being now someone who is your servant or slave, you can only have them serve you for six years. On the seventh year, the year of Jubilee, you have to release them and they'll pay you nothing. It's not like, well, I'll release you if you can give me X, Y, and Z. No, no, no. At that point in time, their debt is paid, they're done, you must release them free of charge. They are now free to go back and 
do what they're going to do. We're also told if this person comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. But if his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. Well, this is interesting. So if the guy comes in, he's a man, he's a slave, he comes in by himself, he's not married, he has no family, those six years are up, it's time for him to be released, well, he's going to go out by himself, free to go, he came in single, he's going to go out single. If he comes in as a married man, so you know what, he's in this situation, my wife and I are going to serve you because we're destitute, we're starving, we give ourselves to you, you give us a place to stay, you give us food to eat, we'll serve you for six years. If they both come in together, well then they go out together, they're both free. But what happens if a single guy, you know, say a guy 20 comes in, serves for a couple years, a master has a woman who's serving as well, and those two get married. Well, his time's up. Her time isn't. Well, he can go out free, but she still has to complete whatever time left that she has. She's not allowed to go with him until her time is up as well. Now, there is an exception to this rule, verses 5 and 6. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free Then his master shall bring him to the judges, he shall also bring him to the door, or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So here is the exception. This man has served for six years, he's done, he's free to go, he's meant to be released, his wife and children still haven't finished out their time, they're still with the master, but his master's a great guy. He's someone who has taken care of him. He's someone who's provided for him. He's someone who showed him just lots of love. And this guy loves his master. He appreciates all that he's done. He loves serving this man. And so he has a choice that he can make. Not a choice that's motivated by debt. Not a choice that's motivated by obligation. But one that is motivated by love for the master. I love you so much that I'm going to choose to stay your servant. I know that you could release me and that you are bound by the law of God to release me, but I am going to make a choice to serve you, not for another six years, not for another 12 years. I'm going to choose to serve you for the rest of my life. Now, he would do this by informing his master, and then his master would have to go to the judges of Israel and inform them because the judges of Israel would say, wait a second, why do you still have this guy? He served his six years. Why is he still in your house? Well, uh, uh, well, that's why you go there first. He has said that he wants to serve me for life because he loves me. Okay, well, to prove this and to show everybody that this servant is different than the rest, they took him to the doorpost and they put his earlobe there and they pierced his ear with an awl. And this was ultimately establishing the fact that this servant was in a new category, a category that we refer to as a Bond servant. A bond servant is someone who willingly chose to serve his master for life because he loved his master. And this earring that was placed in his ear demonstrated the fact that he has chosen to do this. Now, one of the amazing things about a bond servant is we're told that Jesus was a bond servant. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, look at who the perfect bondservant was. Well, it's Jesus. He's the one who, not out of obligation, not out of duty, but out of love to the Father, the Master, says, I am going to serve you for my entire life. And even more significantly, I'm actually going to lay down my life in service to you because I love you. The reason Jesus did what he did was because he loved the Father. But he was also willing to become a bondservant for Love beyond the Father. 
And this is what's interesting about the parallel here, because notice the bondservant, it wasn't just the love for his master that makes him want to stay. He also has a wife and kids that, that are still there that aren't able to be released yet. And he says, well, well, I love them too. And in my love for the master and my love for them, I'm going to commit myself for life to serve this master. And Jesus wasn't only motivated by his love for the father, but also by his love for the bride, the church, For us, he came because of his love for both. He was that perfect bondservant. You know, when the bondservant would look at this servant who has this all in his ear, this earring that's there, I'm sure it just brought uh, lots of great feelings of, hey, this guy's here, not because you know he was obliged to be here, his circumstances were bad, he was a thief, or, or whatever it was that brought him here. No, he's here because he loves me. He's here because he's chosen to stay and serve me. And what a wonderful thing for that master to see. Wow, that's such a great thing. But also the family. Here's someone who's still here, who sacrificed his freedom for the rest of his life because of his love for us. And I'm sure as the father looks at the scars on Jesus Christ, the scars that demonstrate that complete obedience to the father, what a blessing it is because he knows he did this out of love. And the same should be true of us as we look at those scars of Jesus, that symbol of his love for us, that we should just be blown away by what he was willing to do as the perfect bondservant who sacrificed himself for us. But you know, Philippians goes on. It doesn't just say, hey, Jesus was a bondservant. Isn't that so great? Notice what else it says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Hey, Jesus had the mindset of a bondservant who willingly served his master for the rest of his life. Let that mindset be in you as well, that you should be bondservants of him. As he was a bondservant of the father, you should be a bondservant to Jesus, choosing to serve him out of love for the rest of your life. You know, some of the greatest men in the Bible describe themselves with this term bondservant. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Simon Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. All these men are associating themselves with this term bondservants, looking back to what we're seeing here. Someone who willingly chose out of love to serve their master. And they're saying, Jesus is my master. I am his bondservant. I have willingly chosen out of love for him to serve him, not for six years or ten years or or whenever I feel like it. No, to serve him for the rest of my life. You and I have the greatest master in the world. And God loves it when we come and say, I want to serve you. I choose to serve you. I give my life in service to you because I love you. But I think a great question that we should ask ourselves as we see Paul and James and Jude and Peter writing letters to people with that description of themselves, Peter, a bondservant. Could I write Matthew, a bondservant? Could you write your name and bondservant connected with that? Would that describe who you are? That you're someone who's made that choice to say, Jesus Christ, I love you so much. Here's my life. I'm going to sacrifice the freedoms that I could do other things and live for other things and pursue other things. But no, you are the one that I'm going to live for. I live in service completely to you for the rest of my life. See, that's what God wants from us. As he matures us, that's where he's trying to get us to get to that place. We can go from just maybe being, yeah, yeah, I'm a servant here and there. You know, I'll serve you a little bit on a Sunday or, or I'll do this and that a little here and there. No, no, I want your whole life. I want you to be one who serves me, not because you think, well, oh, if I do it, then God's going to love me more. If I do it because I'm obliged to. No, do it because you love me. Do it because you love me so much that you want to serve me for the rest of your life. If you can't describe yourself that way, I think a great question to ask is, what's keeping me from that? What's keeping me from maybe making that choice, but also what's hindering me from becoming that bondservant? What's hindering me from living for God with my life? Maybe you're not even sure. 
I think it's a great time just to come before the Lord to ask him to reveal to you what's the barrier, what's keeping you from that, or if you're already aware of it, if you already know, well, I'm pursuing this, and I know that's not what God has for me, but that's okay because that's what I want to do, that you would say, Lord, help me to change that. Help me to make you the priority, serving you the priority, and that I would do it ultimately out of love. So long as anyone could serve, six years, max, then they have to be released. The only exception was someone who willingly chose to go beyond that, and they would choose it for life. So notice that these people are all choosing to come into this, except for that thief, but even him is going to be released. No one has lifelong servitude except for the person out of love who chooses it. Very different from the way in which we look at slavery today. Now there's another law concerning slavery, one that is important. I mentioned it earlier, a man selling his daughter. Well, let's look at the details concerning that, verses 7 through 11. And if a man sells his daughter to, a, uh, to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has not dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marital rights. If he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying any money. Now, when you first read the statement, if a man sells his daughter into slavery, you think, what a horrible dad. I mean, what kind of father would ever even consider such a thing? But this ultimately wasn't a father selling his daughter into slavery as we think of it. Instead of it's a, a father selling his daughter to someone who wants to marry her. Now, you might think, well, that's not much better. That's because our concept of marriage and the way in which we do it is quite different than the culture of that time because we need to remember in that culture, nobody got a choice as to who they married. The parents made those choices and people married who they were told to marry. And if you wanted to marry someone else's daughter, you paid for her. It was called a dowry. You had to come up with a certain amount of money to give to the father of the daughter as a dowry, and maybe you paid it through camels or you paid it through whatever, but you had to give that to the father of the daughter in order to receive that woman as your wife. And the daughter, the father would hold on to that money, and if you were to die as the husband, then she could come back and live with her father. There would be money there from the dowry to help support her. If there was anything else that transpired where she had to leave that relationship, there was something that was left to take care of her because in that culture, it was basically the men did everything to provide. And if a woman didn't have that man anymore, she was destitute. There was a big problem. So this dowry was there to protect them. And so you could say that all daughters were sold, so to speak, into marriage. So to think, oh my goodness, this is crazy. Well, no, that was just the custom of that time, which is not the custom for us. Now, the difference with this situation was that normally a daughter would live with her parents all the way until her wedding day. And then she would move in with her new husband. The dowry and everything would have been paid off before that, but you know she would stay with her family until the time of her wedding. But there were some occasions where a family was very poor and they would struggle to feed many of their children. And so they see a daughter that's going hungry. They see a daughter they can't take care of. They know that, hey, we have already had this exchange. This person here is going to marry or their son is going to marry our daughter. They've already paid the dowry. We can't provide for our daughter. So we're going to take our daughter and we're going to give them to this family early. Not when she's actually ready to be married at whatever age. We're going to do it earlier. Why? So that they can provide for her, which we can't. So they can give her food, so they can take care of her, because we at this point are incapable of doing it. So it's not slavery as we think of it. It's more of a complex situation concerning arranged marriages. And it was something done out of love. I love my daughter so much that I want to see her taken care of. I don't want to see her go, but I also don't want to see her starve. And this is going to be someone that she's going to spend the rest of her life with anyway. It's not just I'm giving her to some random person. This is the person that we have chosen to marry her. So someone that, that we vetted, someone that we're cautious of because we wouldn't just give our daughter to anyone. They're just going to get her early. Not in marriage yet, 
but just to live there and take care of her until she's of the age where she can marry the person or the son of the person, depending on the situation. Now, obviously, there is some potential that the person who got this girl could abuse that situation. And so once again, God is establishing laws to protect these vulnerable people. Okay, well, this is happening. Poor girls are getting sent early to the people that they're betrothed to. Well, God says, let's establish some laws to make sure we protect these girls. First law, if she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. So here's the first problem that could occur. This girl comes, she lives there for a year, she's not of a married age, and this guy just thinks, you know what, I don't want to marry this person anymore, you know, so I'm done with her. I'll just sell her to someone else. I don't want to marry her. He's come to that conclusion, and so God says, well, wait a second, if that's the situation, well, you cannot sell her, especially to a foreign group. You have to allow her to be redeemed, meaning bought back, specifically by her parents, who, guess what, have money. Why? Because they received a dowry. So her parents now have the capacity to give that dowry back to the individual and buy their daughter back so that she's not put in this position where the guy says, you know what, you're now in my home. I don't want to marry you. I'm going to make a few bucks off of you. I'm going to sell you over to this person. God says, no, 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 that is never going to happen. We're going to protect this girl and not allow that person who, notice he says, shall have no right to sell her. Why? Because he has dealt deceitfully with her. How has he dealt deceitfully? I want to marry you. I paid this dowry for you. I'm committed to this. Well, if that commitment changes, well, he's dealt deceitfully. He claims something that's not true, so he doesn't just get to turn around and say, well, I'm just going to sell you to someone else. No, you let the parents redeem her. Let her go back to her home, and they can go give her to marry someone else. So that's the first way that God protects this girl who would have been, you know, obviously in a situation that was very vulnerable. Now, another thing that God says is if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. Okay, so maybe it's not the dad who is betrothed to Mary. Maybe it's his son, which was very common. You know, the two parents would pick out and they'd be like, okay, so it was Jenny and I. All right, Scarlett, you're going to marry this person's son. And when you both get of age, it's going to happen. That's how it normally was. So oftentimes, okay, you're going to come into my home. My son's here. That's the person you're ultimately going to marry. But God says, if that happens and you receive this girl into your home, you need to deal with her according to the custom of daughters, which is a custom that says, I will treat you like you're my own. Not like, well, you're just this girl from some other family that's ultimately going to marry my son and I'm going to treat you worse and I'm going to make you serve in different ways and I'm going to treat you bad and all my daughters, man, I'm going to treat them wonderful, but you're going to be treated like dirt. No, you're going to treat them exactly like they were your own. So when you're in that home, if that's the situation and you're taking that girl in, then you need to make sure that you treat her like she's your own daughter. Once again, God realizes, hey, this could be bad for this girl. She could come into a situation where you got a jerk dad who's going to take advantage of her. God says, no, you got to treat her just like you would treat any other daughter once again to protect her. Finally, God says, if he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marital rights. And if he does not do these th three for her, then she shall go out free without pain money. Well, here's the other big problem that could come. The guy could say, well, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm going to get married to someone else. Well, what's typically going to happen to this girl at that point in time? Well, all the marital rights that you had, the food, the housing, everything that I, you know, now you're just going to kind of be this slave that I abuse because now you're no longer my wife. You're no longer the one that I, I, I'm going for someone else. And God says, well, you know what? If a person chooses to do that, chooses to marry someone else and put this girl in that position and he does not take care of her, in these three areas, taking care of her food, taking care of um, clothing and marital rights, she has to do all three, she is free to leave, free to go. So if just one of those he neglects of her, then she can go without paying any money. Once again, God is protecting the rights of this girl to make sure she is dealt with justly. Now this is very interesting because if you look at this time, women had pretty much no rights at all. So what God is establishing here was so foreign. 
I mean, not even in the sense of slavery or anything like that, just women in general. If a man who was a husband or a father, whatever, wanted to do something, they pretty much did in that culture. Women had no rights. So for God to establish all these things and to establish that, hey, you have to take care of her, you have to let the family redeem her, you have to, even if you choose to marry someone else, you got to make sure you take care of her or she has to be able to go free. You know, all these things are to protect a people group that were not protected at all in that time. And once again, we just see how God values everyone, but especially those that society looks upon as those who are vulnerable that will take advantage of. God says, not in my legal system, you will not. I'm going to establish things to protect those who are vulnerable and make sure that you do not take advantage of them. So God establishes different laws with slavery. Those who were sold because they sold themselves or whatever. Hey, six years at the most. That's how much you'll serve. And then the year of Jubilee, you'll be set free. If you're a woman and you're sold to a man because he's saying that he's going to marry you or his son is going to marry you, then, hey, if he changes his mind... He has to let the parents buy you back. If he doesn't treat you well and provide for your needs like he's required to, you can leave without paying him anything. And so we see here that God is establishing these laws to protect people. And this is something that we're going to see throughout the laws and throughout what's done. We'll see just punishment for crime, but we're also going to see how God greatly values individuals of all different backgrounds, of all different parts of society, especially those that people take advantage of. God wants equal, fair treatment of everyone. And that's something I love about this legal system, because you look at our legal system today, we know that's not the case. If you got power and money, you get treated way different than if you're poor and you got no power. I mean, we look at even like in the political schemes and even someone like Hillary Clinton, you know, if that was a poor person with no power, they'd be probably in jail for the rest of their life. But hey, she can do all this stuff and nothing happens. Why? Because our system, hey, we, we, we don't treat people the same. If you got power, you got influence, then you can get away with murder, literally. But under God's system, nope. I'm going to make sure everyone, I don't care how powerful you are, I don't care how much money you have, you will be dealt justly just like someone who's poor and someone who's got nothing. Uh, and so, but I'm also going to protect the most vulnerable. Oh, well, this person we should take care of because they're so influential and powerful. Well, what about that person who's so small with little power, so vulnerable? I want to protect them and I'm going to establish laws to make sure that they are taken care of. And we just see God's heart for people equally, that he wants fair treatment for people, that everybody writes are important. And we should see that in our culture today, even though our legal system doesn't actually protect everybody. You know, that's why we stand up for the lives of unborn children. That's why we stand up for things where it says, hey, our culture might be saying, hey, we don't care what happens to these. But as Christians, we say, no, we do, because the God who created us does. And he's established that. And even though our culture has abandoned the way that legal systems should be fair and right and just, we still want that. And in our culture where we can actually vote and we can actually have a voice, we should do what we can to get our culture closer to what God's system is, not farther from it. Um, but I am very encouraged as I look at God's justice system because it's truly fair and just. And it just shows his perfection, his heart of love for people. And I think it's very encouraging as we see this. But some things might be a little shocking to the punishment he gives to certain crimes. But once again, remember, this is the perfect God who's establishing and saying, this is the just punishment. And there's reasons why I'm doing this. And we'll look at that when we get to those things. But any thoughts on these two laws? First, the one of the altar, which ultimately deals with sacrifice and atonement, or slavery, which deals with the protection of the vulnerable.